Got to tell you, I'm a little uncomfortable teaching this story here at Orchard Hill this morning. It would be a lot easier to teach back in my home church in my hometown in Hammond, Indiana, sort of sandwiched between Chicago and Gary, where everybody worked uh, at a steel mill or an oil refinery or a cement plant. But here in Northeast Iowa, you know, where we have a lot of farmers in the congregation, a lot of people who grew up on farms, because the story we're looking at today is one that is critical of a rich Iowa farmer. Oh, wait, well, it didn't actually say an Iowa farmer, but uh, I think that's how it might easily be interpreted. So um, let's jump into it with both feet and see where the Lord takes us. Um, to get a little context, you know, we're looking at parables that Jesus, stories that Jesus taught this summer. And Jesus was a master storyteller. And I know he did it because people connect with stories, don't they? In fact, I have found that when people come up to me and talk to me about a teaching that I did five years or 10 years ago or something, it's never, well, I just appreciate so much how you explained Calvinism or something like that. You know, It's always they remember a story. They remember when I talked about the joy I got from giving my son a car for his 17th birthday, or a time when I was driving in the mountains in Colorado with my pants down, or time when I was headed the wrong direction on a highway for hours with a girl that I'd just broken up with who was in tears, or a time on a beach in San Diego when God manifested divine healing and brought life to her paralyzed legs. People remember those stories. That's what they connect with. And I think for us too, probably, when we think about the things that we know that Jesus taught, so much of that involves the stories that he told. So today, the story we're looking at takes place as Jesus was teaching. In fact, Luke says that there were many thousands of people gathered there listening to Jesus. And Jesus is saying some some deep, important things that he wanted people to understand. And then there's one joker there in this group of people who just doesn't seem to be paying attention to what Jesus is saying at all. He's got his own agenda. And so he just interrupts Jesus all of a sudden and says, teacher, you know, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And it's that question that sort of spurs the story that Jesus told. So let's go ahead and look at this story. It's found in, in Luke chapter 12, uh, starting with verse 13, gives us a little bit of that context. So let me read it to you. It'll be on the screen too. It's also in your bulletin. So it says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, oh, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, well, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. 
But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Interesting story about a rich farmer. And uh, I think for us to, to work at applying it to our lives and ourselves, we kind of need to shift our perspective a little bit. Um, so I think there are three truths from this story that I want to emphasize today. And they're truths that I have struggled with in my own life. So I don't get up here saying I've got it all together. They are truths that I have to continually remind myself of and that over the years I have tried to continually remind you of as well. And the first truth that we learn from this story is that, that we are rich. When it's talking about this rich farmer, you know, you may not be a farmer. You might be a steel worker or work at a cement plant or be a plumber or a teacher. But the truth is that we are rich. I would guess if a few minutes ago I'd ask you to raise your hand if you're, if you're rich, uh, probably not many of you would have raised your hands, maybe out of modesty, but mostly because I think we don't think of ourselves as being rich, do we? I mean, there are a lot of things that I would like to have that I don't have because I can't afford them, things I would like to do that I don't do because I don't have enough money to do them. I mean, when we think about rich people, we think about the people that are kind of flaunted on the media, right, with the multi-million dollar homes and the extravagant lifestyles. We think about that 1% that's so often referred to in political talk, the ones who just add millions and sometimes billions to their accumulated income, you know, each year. They are the rich, not us. But the reality is that we are rich, and the problem in our perspective comes because we are always looking up at those above us who have more, and yeah, compared to them, we are not rich. But I think God would have us look not just up, but focus our perspective down on those who have less. I want to convince you this morning that you are rich. I've got some statistics I want to share with you. Let's start with some of the basics, you know, just clean water. You know, we, we live in a community where we have water. We have it conveniently and abundantly. But that's not the case. 1.1 billion people, 1.1 billion people in the world have no access to clean water. I'm not saying it just isn't convenient. They have no access to clean water. 400 million of those people are children who are going to grow up never having access to clean water. I get upset if I have to, you know, wait 10 seconds after I turn on the faucet waiting for the water to get hot, you know. But if you lived in many places of the world today, in many developing and underdeveloped countries, you would find yourself, especially if you are a woman, spending hours, literally hours every day doing the back-breaking job of walking to the nearest location of clean water and then hauling that water back for yourself and your family. And you would do that every day, seven days a week. 
you're going to go home today and you're going to have clean water to drink and to wash your clothes and to bathe in and you're going to have it because you are rich. All the discussion today about health care, I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming, isn't it? And it's a little bit scary. I am at that point in my life, you know, where I wonder what's going to happen with Medicare and Medicaid. You know, I wonder how much cost of health insurance is going to go up. And yet, I have incredibly great health care, as we all do in this country. And my doctor's office is just a, a few blocks from my home. There's an urgent care center there, you know, that's available. I can get help 24 hours a day. We live within a couple hours of some of the best clinics and hospitals in the world. And we complain about health care. 270 million people in the world have no access to health care of any time. Did you notice, if I'd had a pulpit here, I'm sort of pounding the music stand. I'd be pounding the pulpit here. You know? 270 million people have no access to any kind of health care at all. Two million children die every year of easily preventable diseases and illnesses that aren't treated because they live in poverty and they have no access to health care. So they die of something like diarrhea that could be so easily treated, but they cannot because they are poor. We are rich. I bet some of you already are trying to figure out what you're going to have for lunch, right? You're maybe going to go out to, uh, to a restaurant. Maybe you're going to spend $40 on lunch for yourself and for your family. You know? 870 million people in the world do not have enough food 870 million people in the world are probably never going to have a full meal. They're never going to have the experience of having their stomachs full, their hunger sated. It's never going to happen because they live in poverty. 22,000 children die every day due to poverty-related causes. 22,000 children every day die because they are poor. We are rich. How do we live with that? How do we stand before God and justify the fact that we rich people have allowed those conditions to exist in our world? You're going to go home today to a, a house with a floor and you're debating whether to get laminate or hardwood floors and you're going to turn on the air conditioning. 640 million children in the world do not have adequate shelter. You have electricity. One quarter of all the people in the world do not have electricity and all the conveniences that come with it. I don't think of myself as a rich person, but I am. And if I look at the world around me, I recognize I am a rich man. And I have to remind myself of that again and again and again, and I lay it out before you. You, know, you are rich. 
And the second truth is you are rich because God has blessed you. That's almost harder for me to hold on to that truth than is the first one, that I'm rich. Because I feel like I say, all right, I, yeah, I admit it. I have a comfortable, easy lifestyle. But I have it because I've earned it, because I've worked at it. You know? I went to school. I got my undergraduate and my graduate degrees. I studied hard. I was at the top of my class. You know, I put in long hours. I have because I have worked hard and I have earned it. And wasn't that the perspective of the rich farmer in the story that Jesus told? What did he say? You know, my crops, my barns, the increase you know, of my harvest. It was all about what he had done, what he had accomplished, rather than recognizing that he was rich, that he had a good harvest because God had blessed him. Well, if anybody recognizes that, I know it is those of you who are farmers or who grew up on farms that you know that the only reason there is ever a good harvest is because the rains come at the right time and the heat comes at the right time so that the crop grows. And that was so true in Israel in Jesus' day as well. If the early and the late rains didn't come when they were supposed to, there would be no crop. And people might not survive until the next harvest season if that if that crop wasn't able to, brought in, to be brought in, if it wasn't a good harvest. And we tend to think, you know, it's because of us, because of what I have done. But the Bible tells us we are blessed because God has blessed us. James 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 16 says this, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God. You are blessed and you are blessed. You are rich and you are rich because God has blessed you, because God has made you rich. And you need to understand that. God is the one who has blessed you. So you put in long hours and you, you earn that over over time pay, right? You work your way up the corporate ladder, but you're able to do that because God has blessed you with a, with a strong body and a strong mind. You got a good education. What if you had had no opportunity to have an education? Two billion people in the world cannot even write their own name, cannot read a single word in a book, and you boast in your education you have an education because God has blessed you, because God has put you in a place where you are able to get that education. You boast in your good work ethic and how many hours you put in and how much overtime pay you are earning. But what if you were living in the slums of Mexico City and you put in those long hours climbing up that mountain of garbage and refuge outside the city in hopes of finding something that maybe is resaleable or edible. You boast in your education, what you accomplish, and your business skills, but how much of that would matter if you had an IQ of 70 instead of 110? You are blessed, you are rich because God has blessed you. He has made you rich. We are a rich people, you and I. 
and we are rich because God has blessed us. And so God says to the rich farmer, who has got all these possessions, all this riches that he's gathered for himself, who comes to the conclusion, I think this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take all of this and I'm going to use it for myself and I'm going to live on easy street from now on. You know, in a way, that, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, if there is no God, if you have no responsibility to God, if it's not God who has blessed you, who has made you rich, then why not? The apostle Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking about the resurrection. And he says, you know, if the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Why not? Why not just use what I have for myself if there is no God and if I have no responsibility to him? But we know that's not the case, is it? God has blessed us for a reason. God has made us rich for a reason, and God holds us responsible for how we use the riches that he's given to us. So for the rich farmer in Jesus' story, things were more important to to him than God. He was rich in possessions, but he was poor toward God. And Jesus says, be careful of greed, because you don't want to come to the end of your life and find you have all of these possessions that you are rich in material things but poor toward God. And so we have a responsibility then to use what God has given to us in a way that's going to honor him, that's going to show that we value God more than we value things that to us, our relationship with God, our eternal relationship with him outweighs the value that we place on possessions. So how do we do that? How do we use our riches in a way that's going to honor God? Well, I think we begin by recognizing that God commands us to give back to him out of what he's given to us so generously. The standard in the Bible tends to be, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what is called the tithe, 10%. That we give back to God 10%, the first 10% of what he gives to us. And in that way, we do something that is beyond just saying thank you to God, beyond just recognizing that it's God who's given to us. We actually, you know, put put skin in the game when we take what we have and we give some of it back to God. That's the command that God has given to us. In 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, you know, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. We give back to God. So how do you do that and where do you do it? Um, I would suggest that that 10% that you give back to God ought to be given primarily to the local congregation. I'm feeling good about saying that, and I'll tell you why. For, for years, I felt like, 
Attorney General Jeff Sessions that I ought to recuse myself because when I talk about your giving to Orchard Hill Church, I'm really talking about your paying my salary. And it just felt a little weird, you know? But you don't pay my salary anymore, so we're going to talk about it today. I think your primary responsibility in that giving is to give to your local congregation. So if you have a home church, I believe that's where your primary giving ought to be. And I think you can feel good about those of you who are a part of our Orchard Hill family, who are on the mission with us. I think you can feel good about what you give to Orchard Hill. And I have believed that, you know, in the 40 years that I've been around here. Orchard is a, is a frugal congregation that we use the money that you give to the church in ways to accomplish the mission that God has given to us, to help next generations you know, encounter and follow Jesus, to bless a broken world. That's what we're about, and that's where our money goes. And we've got to see that even that money that is used to pay the electric bill is a part of that mission so that this building can be open. You know, everything we give, we give with that mindset that God has entrusted us to use that money that you give in ways that honor him and accomplish his will. We have what we call a, um, an asset management team, a group of people from you, you know, who sort of oversee the finances of our church. They are very gifted, spiritual people, who are intent on making sure that we use our money wisely and well and in a way that honors God. Pat Ayler, one of our staff people, is our our business manager and oversees that. And Pat um, would love to talk to you about it. I believe that Orchard tries very hard to be open and transparent. We publish our budget. He would love to, if you've got a question about Orchard Hill, about how we give our money, how we use our money, or if, or, um, or if you want to, to give some money, I would encourage you to call Pat, Pat Ayler. Call him here at church or email him. Information, you know, that contact information is online. I think you can feel really good about giving to Orchard Hill Church, and I just encourage you to do so. And then, you know, maybe some of it will filter down to retired pastors, but that's beside the, that's, that's beside the point. So that's where we begin, you know, I think giving to the local church. The second part of your responsibility is that you are to, to care for the needs of your family and those for whom you have responsibility. You take care of yourself and you take care of your family. You meet their needs. Now, that doesn't mean that you give your kids everything you want or that you live or spend lavishly. It means that you keep your responsibility that God has given you to provide for people to whom God has entrusted uh, into your care. Um, So you need to make sure that's done. And then beyond that, then you need to give to the needs of others beyond your local church, beyond your own family. God cares about the needy in our world. The Bible just stresses again and again that God's heart is for the widow and the orphan and the foreigner and the stranger who is within your gates. And that God is pleased when we take part of what God has blessed us with and we give it to the needs of others. Uh, There's a place in the Gospels where the... the, uh, 
John, John the baptizer, is baptizing people in the Jordan River. People keep coming to him and, and asking him, you know, what do we need to do to get our lives straight? And at one point he says this. This is in Luke chapter 3. He says, so anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. You know, it's laying it out pretty basic, isn't it? If you have more than you need, if you have two shirts, you should be giving one of those shirts away. Well, we could say that literally. Let's go home and take a look at your closet, you know. And let's see how much of that you ought to be giving away to help meet the needs of other people. James, this is the half-brother of Jesus, writes in the little book in the end of the New Testament. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In 1 John, this is written by Jesus' disciple, John, he says, you know, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that? You know, you, don't, you maybe don't know sort of what the process of, for me anyway, of coming up with a teaching for Sunday morning is, but I go over it a lot during the week. And I... I actually had to stop rehearsing this because it, it just drove me to my knees. How can we say the love of God is in it you know, if, we, if we don't share the possessions that God has given to us? You, know, you and I are going to stand before God someday. How do we justify the way that we live in light of how so many people in the world live? You know, there, there are children every day who are going blind for lack of a 20-cent eye drop because they live in poverty. I want you to know, too, you need to give carefully and wisely. You need to be very careful about the organizations to whom, you, to whom you give money. But I'll tell you, when you give to something like Food for the Hungry, we have you know, literally hundreds of children in, in Mozambique who are sponsored by folks from this congregation. You are not only changing the lives of those children, you're not only seeing that they have clean water and health care and education, but that entire community is being changed through your generosity. And I think when you do that, you need to feel good about it. You need to sense that God is saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That's how I want you to live. That's how I want you to treat the possessions that I have given to you. Because someday it's going to happen. And maybe it's going to be tomorrow, and maybe it's going to be 10 years from now, or maybe it's going to be 30 years from now, but someday you are going to be held accountable by God for how you use the riches that you have accumulated during this life. And you don't want to hear God saying, you fool. In fact, literally, you damn fool. You spent your life collecting all this stuff, and whose is it now? Oh, this is hard. It's hard for me. I want to live this way. 
So I think my final point would be this, that just that we would together pray that God would free us from that bondage that comes from greed and materialism, that we would hold loosely to things and hold tight onto God, that we would live our lives in a way that shows that we desire God, desire pleasing him more than we desire anything else in the world. May that be true for us, and may we live in a way that shows that it's true. Let's pray. Lord God, I just, sometimes it just hits me so deep in my core. I can't stand to watch a, a public service announcement on television when it talks about, you know, the animals, dogs and cats that are abused and, and, and I switch the channel because I don't want to see that. And yet there are millions and millions of, of children who live in conditions worse than that. And I live in a big house and I have two cars. Just help us, Lord, to live in a way that honors and pleases you. Forgive us our greed and our materialism. We pray in the name of our Savior Jesus, who had no place to lay his head.